Hello, and welcome back to SIGGRAPH Spotlight. We're thrilled to have you here for this latest conversation as we dive into deepfakes. Where did the tech originate? What research should you be aware of? How are artists using deepfake tech today? And perhaps most importantly, why should everyone care about deepfakes? Let's let SIGGRAPH 2021 Technical Papers Chair Sylvain Paris and three of our incredible guests take it from here. I'm Sylvain Paris. I'm the Technical Papers Chair for SIGGRAPH 2021. In my day job, I'm a researcher at Adobe, where my personal interests are around photo and video editing and everything around helping people to be more creative and creating more compelling imagery there. At Adobe in general, we're also very interested in the topic of deepfakes we're going to discuss today. And for instance, Adobe is part of a consortium called the Content Authenticity Initiative that's meant to help people, good actors, to establish the truth of their content and to create it without any problem. And now we're going to go through all our panelists so that they can introduce themselves and we can get used to, to their voice. So, Ekta, what don't you get first? Hi, everyone. My name is Ekta Jain. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Florida. My area of expertise is perception in graphics. I'm interested in where we pay attention, why we pay attention here, and how we can use this perceptual priorities to cross the uncanny valley and make more compelling virtual characters. So in recent years, I've been looking at the privacy and security implications of uh, large-scale behavioral data collection that we're doing as part of efforts in graphics and VR. And that's some of the things that we're working on right now in my lab. Chris, do you want to go next? So I'm Chris Bregler. I actually come from computer vision. I got my PhD from Berkeley, but then during that PhD, I wanted to do graphics. And so I worked with the company Interval and we built one of the precursors of deepfakes in the late 90s. And then I joined Stanford as a professor, but worked with the visual effects industry. So we worked on things like Gemini Man, and I consulted on the Matrix sequels. At ILM, we worked on lots of sort of deepfake technology, you would call it right now, applied to Star Wars and Star Trek and so on. And then five years ago, I joined Google to sort of apply visual effects to deep learning. But then three years ago, deepfake happens. And so we started a new team to address the new threats. And we're sort of working with lots of different parts of Google right now in this space. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Matthias, do you want to go to introduce yourself? I'm Matthias Niesner. I am a professor in Munich at the Technical University of Munich. I've been working on the intersection between graphics and vision with a lot of applied machine learning. And our research is essentially, we want to create virtual avatars and virtual characters. So we want to synthesize virtual beings in a sense that are indistinguishable from ourselves. And we both highlight positive and negative aspects of virtual media in a sense. So we want to also understand and examine what ethical concerns could come up when we have virtual meetings and possibly talking to a virtual AI. And in addition to my academic role, I'm also a co-founder of Synthesia. And, and our vision is to make these avatars reality to help content creation tools, not just for movies, but also for day-to-day -day business, like have a virtual assistant that helps you, I don't know, go shopping, help to fix your car and stuff like that. And I think there's a lot of great opportunities in these areas, but we also have to be very yeah, careful how to approach forward and what are positive, possible harmful implications. At the same time, we're also working on 
detection of misinformation these days. So we're trying to help identify deep fakes. We're trying to identify false misinformation associated with manipulated images or videos. And we're trying to help also to educate the public in a sense, what is the things you actually have to be careful about. Well, thanks, Matthias. So I think just to put us on the, the, the same page, I would like to read the definition of Wikipedia that defines deepfakes as a synthetic media in which a person in an existing image or video is replaced with someone else's likeness. So as a way to get started, I would like to give you a chance to elaborate on your introduction and tell us a bit more how deepfakes impact your work and how you see the trend happening at SIGGRAPH and in the Graphics interactive techniques community. Why don't we go the the other or we're around with Matthias continuing on your nice introduction. I'm originally from computer graphics and I always wanted to synthesize virtual environments and make them look as realistic as possible. So I understand that everybody has a different definition. I don't want to break your definition right now, but essentially what's happening at these days is like kind of everything or often everything that's kind of synthetically created is associated with it is a deep fake. So in a sense, some people go even as far outside the graphics community, they would say everything in computer graphics is a deep fake. They don't mention it way, but that's how they describe it. And for me, the terminology is maybe maybe not that ideal, but I think generally speaking, there's of course a lot of positive interest in terms of how can we use synthetic media, synthetic imagery from movies, games, and bring them in our day-to-day -day business. And there's a lot of business opportunities around it aside from entertainment. A lot of our work has been revolved around humans and specifically faces to make them look as realistic as possible, reconstruct them, possibly animate them, put them in virtual environments and so on. And I think from a technical direction, I always was very fascinated. How can you make it as realistic as possible? Like how do you get emotions right? How do you get all the, the wrinkles right? And the appearance. And we have made quite a bit of progress. We had a very popular paper face-to-face -face, I think three and a half years ago now that has made a lot of impact and I would say sparked a lot of the discussions around it. But I also think we're nowhere near at the end yet, right? Like we're still having Zoom calls right now that are 2D videos and I'm thinking more as a future where you have virtual communications be almost as realistic as real communication and being in home office, being stuck in COVID. And we all know that this is not the case yet. So we still have a lot of work to do to make remote collaboration possible to interact virtually just in the same way we do in real life. That's one of our big missions that we're working on right now. And I think this is a lot of the tech and research we're doing right now is driven by that kind of fact. Chris, do you want to follow up? Sure. I've been working on deepfakes for, for 25 years now. So it's, of course, it was not called deepfakes, but I started doing computer liberating and I worked with psychologists and we wanted to do graphics to learn how to hearing impaired people can better acquire lip reading skills. And then we worked the system called Video Rewrite that can automatically dub movies. And so you could translate them in many different languages back then. And um, in the visual effects industry, like we also like, we want to work on the positive impacts of deep fakes uh, for entertainment, for gaming, and at Google, when I started, we also had a virtual reality effort. You do remote presence and you have always this clumsy, well, I don't want to say what company it is, but you always have something in front of your eyes, a brick in front of your eyes, but you can use graphics to replace your face and have a more natural eye gaze driven. You can make eye contact and you can see the entire 
ultimately the entire person in this uh, remote communications. So we're very still very much interested in all these technologies, how the work, work make have societal benefits. But then, like Matthias and others, three years ago, we started working with academics and organizations like Witness and Partnership for AI and many other nonprofits to look into solutions how to mitigate the threats of deep fakes and also cheap fakes. Deep fakes is always like sort of a future threat, but this is not the first time this happened. 30 years ago, Photoshop was invented or longer than 30 years ago, and people know how to manipulate media or even like hundreds of years ago, people did that already. But with deep fakes, uh, we're just looking at sort of what the new threats are out there. There's a big landscape of solutions that we're looking at with all our collaborators. And maybe later we can talk a bit more about it. Ekta, what's your take on deep fakes and how it affects your work? And how you, where do you see that connecting to SIGGRAPH and the work that's presented at the conference? It's interesting as I listen to Matthias and, and Chris in that almost, I mean, all of computer graphics is a fake, right? It's, a, it's faking reality. And since everything is being driven by deep neural networks, uh, technically it's a deep fake. I always, prior to entering this discussion, I tended to think about deep fakes as being kind of like a talking face that is situated within a video. So I admit I had very narrow parameters for what a deep fake is. The creators of South Park, they created that very viral deep fakes video and they called it a form of makeup. And so to me, those are kind of the parameters for how I used to think about deep fakes. What's interesting to me is that more than myself, I worry about my children because for them, data is being collected throughout their lifespan. The kind of data that can enable deep fakes creation. And that is one of my, my biggest worries at a very kind of basic fundamental level. And that's one of the reasons why I've, with my students, we've started looking at how much data do we really need? So we are coming at this with the attitude of more data is better, right? We'll cross the uncanny valley with more data. Of course, seeing as my area of expertise is perception, I do know that it's not always about more. All we need to do is 25 frames per second, right? And we've created the illusion of motion. So how I see that it relates to SIGGRAPH and graphics in our community is kind of thinking about how much data do we need for what purposes? So that it's not just about more and more data, but about targeted data acquisition. Thanks, I'd like to continue on that thread. If we can elaborate a bit of where we see risk around deep fakes. And in the US, we're out of election cycle. And I think every time an election cycle happens in any country, uh, deep fakes and problems around can we trust what we see? And we have seen what Chris called cheap fakes sometimes are as effective as deep fakes there. But Ekta bring, bring a very nice point. There are other risks, right? We're just being very sensitized to uh, things that happen on TV with the news cycles and everything, but it can touch us in a more personal way. So, can we discuss a, a bit about that? And Ekta, can you elaborate a bit where you see the risk of 
as you said, now we all have our data, our, our lives are online. We have so many views of ourselves and videos. What worries you in that domain? So I can talk a little bit about the risks and what we can do about them is a much harder question. Things that we are seeing happen from a graphics and VR perspective is a situation or a world where behavioral data will be collected at large scale. Behavioral data refers to any data that's gestures, body movements, eye tracking, facial expressions. This kind of data is needed to create compelling virtual avatars. The more and more virtual avatars penetrate every aspect of life, the more we're going to be collecting this data at a large scale. Actually, let me back up, right? I tend to think about graphics as having three pillars of kind of traditional graphics, modeling, animation, and rendering, right? Modeling refer to, if we were to think about this in terms of humans and virtual avatars, creating the geometry of the humans. Animation refers to all of the things that we do with behavioral data, right? Making the humans move, hand gestures, body gestures, eye movements, facial expressions, and rendering refers to creating the appearance, right? So, so that I have the right skin color and, you know, when, when I flush, my face looks flushed and, and such like. In order to, to create virtual avatars, we're going to have to collect all of these data at a much larger scale for everybody who wants to have a virtual avatar. And sometimes it's going to be a matter of choice and sometimes it's not going to be a matter of choice, right? For example, to do an on the training, appear for a job interview, or do a healthcare appointment in these days, I have to do it virtually. I don't have a choice in these matters. And what's going to happen is that the cues that are used to create compelling virtual avatars can then be used for secondary analysis to infer attributes about us that we necessarily want inferred by certain entities. One simple example of this is, of course, identity theft. So for example, in the work in our lab, we've looked at what are the types of identity theft that can happen when you place an eye tracker on a human. A very clear example of this is that an eye tracker images the iris of the person that is being tracked. And the iris is a strong biometric used for uh, access to classified facilities and voting, and importantly, cannot be changed. Right? So if somebody has access to that iris image for you, they can use it to spoof you. Identity theft can occur with any kinds of deep fakes, right? your gait and so on. The second kind of threat is related to various kinds of health markers, which are also contained in behavioral data. Right? And I think is also an interesting uh, kind of threat that strikes at the root of the public's fear of somebody having this data, right? For instance, I want my child to be able to meet with their teachers in a virtual environment, to be able to do virtual field trips and so on. But do I necessarily want the platform that they're using for this experience to then start inferring if they have dyslexia? What happens when they share that with their parent company or across third parties and so on? And either I start getting unsolicited advertisements or maybe my insurance company is able to make inferences and then start recommending certain tests to me, which you know, they wouldn't have otherwise. These risks 
have a different meaning for different people. So where people are, some might consider it a benefit, right? Oh, there's early warning. Wouldn't you like to know as a parent that your child is showing these markers? And uh, wouldn't you like to get them tested, right? And others may say, well, no, I'll get them tested when their pediatrician suggests. Thank you very much. I don't need my phone to suggest these things for me. For me. What's interesting from a technology perspective is how do we enable people to navigate the spectrum of where they are with respect to their individual comfort level? So of course I can talk more about this, but that's kind of the brief picture. Matthias, do you want to share your point of view on the, the risk of deep fake and what worries you the most? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of a question, again, what we consider to be a deep fake, right? Obviously, data concerns is one thing, but I guess when I'm when the media mostly talks about deep fakes, and I'm just talking about like what the public opinion mostly is, I think in this case, we're talking about like falsified images of people, right? Or falsified, falsified videos of people pretending to be someone maybe who you're not and so on. The main concern that the public raises is that you can now manipulate videos and pretend to be someone and pretend to speak on behalf of someone without the person knowing about it, right? I mean, that's the main public concern when you talk to a journalist, they would tell you. I can see that the people react very heavily to that, right? Because of course, like suddenly, oh, can you trust what you're seeing right now? Undermining trust in images and videos basically is, is just going to a next level. That's one of the discussion and debates that has been going on in the public for quite a while. I've been always a bit cautious about it because coming from computer graphics, it's very clear that when you're looking at a movie or you're watching a movie, right, it's very clear that most of the things are now CG. Like we know that these things are not real. And of course, coming from the field, we are a little bit more, we have a prior in a sense that we know like, well, not everything in an image or in a video might be real because there might be an actor, there might be a lot of computer graphics attached to it. So we know that not everything we're seeing is actually an issue or might be not real, right? We know that. The public has going through some education process in the last three years, and I think now it's settling a little bit down, and, and people are not reacting as strongly anymore than they did like three years ago when we released the face-to-face -face videos or so, when people could suddenly animate faces and so on. And also it turns out at the same time that these things of like manipulating videos are still very costly in a sense. Like economically speaking, if you want to spread misinformation, it's not worth it for you to manipulate videos specifically. If you're going ahead and manipulate a video of a, of a politician and pretending to give a false speech, I think at the moment, it, A, it costs you resources in a sense. You need a machine learning engineer who does that for you. And there's just not so many people who are doing it right or can get it right. And at the same time, if it's a politician, people might fact check it. They go ahead and like they figure things out, right? It turns out at the moment what we're seeing in like political campaigns and election cycles The biggest issue is not necessarily that we can falsify images or videos. The biggest issue seems to be just making like out of context claims. So you're taking an image out of context, you're just having a different captions underneath and you're trying to pretend it means something different. So this is currently, it seems to be this kind of out of context use or, or just making like blatantly false statements like what Trump's doing, right? He's claiming he won an election, which he clearly didn't. These are the major things that are really happening, but they're not necessarily backed by deepfakes. And I think That's also not necessarily the major danger because of that, because it's too expensive. There's other ways to spread misinformation cheaper. But there are a couple of areas where I think deepfakes are a problem. If you're looking at the, at the usage of deepfakes, like there's one domain where deepfakes are being used. And I think 99 plus percent of deepfakes are actually used in pornography. So what's happening is people are actually being face swapped 
um, celebrities have been facing up in the pornographic content and then they appear on some porn website, right? And that's a bigger issue in my opinion because in this case, you're violating the person and you can't even do anything about it. Even if I detected it's a fake, you can't fix that harm that is being done. And when you push this a little bit further and you're going to the schoolyard, right, in high schools, and suddenly you have some fake content being circulated across students there, like it doesn't even matter if you know it's a fake, but the harm is still being done. And like the, the mental harm is really hard to compensate for. So I think that, in my opinion, is currently one of the, the biggest challenges of like deep fakes in a sense. But at the same time, we have to be very careful about how it's going to develop, right? I mean, the, the entry hurdles of using this kind of technology becomes, of course, lower and lower. So we have to be very careful where it's going. But at the moment, I don't see a lot of big harm in the context of politics misinformation. I see more problems in, in terms of defamation and stuff like that, like online mobbing and stuff like this. These kind of things, I see more problems and this is happening and it's very hard to counter it because it doesn't even matter if you figure things out, right? Even if you detect it, the harm's being done and you can't change it. So that's something we have to be very careful, I think, also from a, from a policy question on like social media sites and so on. Like who owns your virtual identity, right? Like what can you do with it? And this comes a little bit back to the discussion of privacy, what you had before. Who owns your virtual identity? Who can use that? And that is a question we don't know yet, I think. And also lawmakers don't know that yet. And I had a lot of politicians actually asking me, both in Europe and in the US, and they're having a lot of, they're struggling with it, right? Because they don't want to censor things. They don't want to overregulate. And at the same time, there's still a bit of a question in like how do you virtually appear and like who owns your likeness and stuff like that. So I think that's going to be a, a pretty interesting thing. And I think we at Sigra, in the Sigra community, we're kind of at the forefront of this, right? Because we've been dealing this for the last decades, basically, in the content of entertainment. But now it's just it's just expanding the field and the reach a little bit further. Thanks, Matthias. Chris, what's your, your take on this? I actually agree with Ekta and Matthias. Like deepfakes, besides non-consensual pornography, is sort of more like a future threat. And the cheap fakes, and that's also out of context, like you just cheaply re-edit something or you put like a different logo on and says, this is from CNN or BBC, but it's not really from them. Or you just cut out something and put a different soundtrack on. That's the most prevalent threat right now. There's also another threat where you don't do anything and you just claim it's fake, but it's actually real. Uh, it's the liar's dividend. And we're seeing a lot more of those cases where you actually, as a witness or as a reporter or something, you say, hey, this person did this, but then you can actually claim it's a deep fake, but it's not. There's also with consent, we are seeing a very positive trend there. Like, for example, I don't want to speak for Matthias, but his company, Synthesia, where he co-founded it, they're only deepfaking actors and actresses that consented to being deepfaked. And we see this from a lot of different parties. We also, last year, released a deepfake data set for academia to take advantage of that. And that was the first data set where we actually, we only release data where we seek consent from the people who we record that they will be deepfaked. Other threats, as you know, like 50,000 years ago, we invented this thing called language. And then we realized you can just spread a rumor, you know, and that's damaging. But we have now 50,000 years of experience. When you hear a rumor, you don't just blindly believe that's the truth. So what happened over the last three years, and also others said that before, is we're, we're doing a lot of uh, education, uh, how to consume media, 
how to be critical. We have now over 30 years of critical thinking about photos. And whenever you see a new photo, you always say, yes, this must be Photoshopped or not. And nowadays we also, okay, so this might be a deep fake. This might be not a deep fake. So I, I see a lot of positive trends in this area. Another thread is in SIGGRAPH, which is the prime venue for like the state of the art of graphics. We're focusing on of getting every subpixel right. But a lot of damage can be done if you really badly Photoshop or badly deepfake somebody. And then uh, somebody sees that and it's sort of like you remember that something was fake. But after a few days or a few weeks, you don't remember exactly what was fake and your reputation is already damaged, even with really bad quality deepfakes and Photoshop edits. I encourage uh, the academic community and others to do more studies from a sort of a psychological perspective. What are the real harms of lower quality manipulations that can be achieved much easier? Thanks, everyone. I'm curious if you have heard anything or have a point of view also on the potential risk in the entertainment industry. Like, for instance, everyone can look like everyone else. Do you think there's a risk that at the end, like... We won't have that many actors anymore, and we just swap the look, and but it's all the same person, and there's less diversity. Or, or it's a bit of an extreme, of course, but do you think there's a risk in that direction in terms of content production? So, I see several of you smiling. So, if you you want to to go, like Chris, I used to work in the visual effects industry for some time now, and this was a concern already, like 20 years ago, when face replacement happened already. And then actors and actresses were concerned, what is my role? But it's it's really not replacing the performance itself and the acting. Even in, in the latest movie, uh, when ILM and others like Gemini Man and Viveda, you cannot just fully automate the acting itself. Maybe in a few years, you can also like change the motions and maybe go all the way to how you can mimic idiosyncrasies, how you say certain things. But so far, it's just like a mask. Where you used makeup before, you can use some deep fake technology. But without the actor, you cannot really replace the creative process and where this performance comes from. I had a wise-ass comment, and which was that there's little enough diversity in body structure and skin tone and so on. It can't go down further. In fact, if anything, deep fakes might make it better, right? Because oftentimes people say, well, I can't find an actor who has an Indian face or who has a black actor who can play this role or so on. Well, you can swap it in, right? You can imagine your character and exactly make it that character, which probably goes to Chris's point of it being a sophisticated form of makeup. So ultimately, it's the director's vision and the storyteller's vision as to whether they will want to have those characters on screen. Like in The Irishman, for example, they asked Robert De Niro and others, now act like you're 30 years old or act you're like 40 years old. And if you would act, like if you would just mix and match like a 50-year-old onto a 30-year-old actor, something would be off. And if you go across different personalities, different ethnicities, uh, gender, many other variables. You cannot just mix and match. It's sort of like for computer graphics and visual effects, when you put on a makeup, the actor and actress itself, they also had to sort of get into this mode. Like now I'm, now I'm an 80 year 
old person and I'm like really sad and I just got out of this crazy situation or whatever. And they, they have to really work really hard with their performance itself to sort of mimic all that. And so, so there are limitations. You cannot just replace the appearance. And so hopefully there is new technology coming along, but let's see what the future brings us in SIGGRAPH on all these techniques. I think in the next years, we will be able to do all of these things. And I think it's very clear that more and more things can be automated. But I think I fully agree with Ekta's point. I think, I think this is great news for all of us because that means we can democratize content creation, right? We don't need to have this one actor everywhere. Like you can be part of a movie. You can have your kids part of a movie, right? And especially when you're talking about diversity, the movie industry and the entertainment industry is one of the worst ever. Right? They just take existing business model and they just keep them running for as long as they can. So I think that's a fantastic opportunity to just have, have more people contribute their own content as it gets more and more easy. Right? I think that, that's, a, that's a fantastic opportunity. You can customize movies to different audiences. Right? You yourself can be part of the movie. And I think that's a, it's a really cool prospect. Right? I mean, this is like revolutionary the, the whole industry. And I also don't think for the industry itself, from a business perspective, I think the industry was always pretty good at making licensing deals and stuff like this. You can go ahead and license likeness of different avatars, right? You can also make businesses around that. So I think overall, I mean, that's a, I think it's a pretty good trend in a sense when you can actually go ahead and make generally content creation accessible to everyone. People, not just Hollywood can do these things, but literally everybody around the globe. And I think that that just leads to more interesting things that can be shared. And I think it's generally a very, very positive development. And well, at the same time, the technology we're developing in the community right now brings the cost down, right? So that makes it also the barrier of entry will just be much lower. And I think that's, I don't see any disadvantage there right now. I think there's only positive aspects. I think there's a lot of business opportunities around it. But I think it's not just the likeness, the appearance, but it's also going to be, I don't know, maybe some AI component, like from a virtual avatar standpoint, right? You want to have your assistant have a specific appearance, but then also specific behavior and stuff like that. So I think even there, I think that's like, this will not happen overnight. There will be many, many stages, of course, until we get there. And it's not going to happen next year. It's going to happen over the next decade, basically, right? They will be step by step. We will solve one by one of the problems. There's also a flip side to that that Ekta also mentioned earlier, the privacy anonymization. So Witness, Witness is this nonprofit organization that cares a lot about citizen journalists and when they like record certain areas you don't want to show everyone in a street demonstration their identity and so on and they had sort of a feature many years ago where you can automatically blur out faces so you don't know who it is but they're now recently academics like C.V. Liu's lab in uh, University of Buffalo they're using generic deepfakes so it's going the opposite direction where you sort of replace your face with a generic face, you, you still have the feeling, you still can see what's going on in the video, but you have no way to identify that person, sort of a deep fake privacy filter. And a few other technologies are coming out by various academics lately. So who is the person who got chosen to be generic deep fakes? That's like the real human SpongeBob. <laughs> I think there are different modes. You can take the average or you can, they've done many different experiments with it. Maybe adding to that one, right? I mean, if you're talking about, I mean, I'm, by the way, I'm a big fan of using deepfakes for privacy preservation and stuff like this. 
by the way, privacy preservation, it's not just the face, right? It's a very difficult thing. You have to do a lot of things. You have the person, the behavior, the background, the street signs, number plates, all these kind of things you have to take care for. And there's a lot of things that you can still localize images pretty well, even if you don't see the faces. I really still like this point, right? That we as graphics and also AI researchers, we have to be very clear about ethical questions here when we're talking about generic faces, right? We have to make sure that all the virtual avatars and virtual beings we're going to synthesize, they have some meaningful reflection of the diversity of the population. Like we shouldn't ignore that, right? Because otherwise people feel left out. And that is a responsibility here of the community that we should not neglect these things. And there's a lot of, I'm not sure how much about SIGGRAPH, but in the NURBS community or so, they have a very strong focus on these trends that we want to make sure that AI helps actually everybody, not just a subset of old white people, basically. And I think it is a danger, but I think at the same time, the opportunity to change things where we are right now, and the gradient can only go upwards, right? And I think we just have to, we have to have that discussion. And then we have to think about how we can use it better, right? Like, I don't know, I'm, I'm talking about simple stuff. Like if you're making a kid's show and you can kind of tailor it to the target audience, the target ethnicity and stuff like this, I think that's a fantastic opportunity and we should look into it. So Matthias, here's a question for you. Is it... In terms of increasing the diversity of the faces that are generated, right? Is it simply a matter of fixing the databases, so to speak? Is it just the data or is there something else that needs to be innovated or developed from the deepfakes perspective? I think the data itself is, is too simple. If you're just talking about, that's an easy excuse that a lot of data scientists have. They just say, oh, we just, our algorithm is not racist. We just didn't have the right data. I think that's too easy. I think we have to do a bit better than that, right? We have to we have to check like how our bias is being amplified, for instance, like depending on what optimizations you're using. Like but it sounds very simple. Like if you're just using a simple loss function that gets rid of the outliers, like yes, your data set is diverse because of the outliers, and you have to make sure your algorithm also compensates for these kind of things. So I don't think it's just the data. We also have to make sure that the algorithms that they manage to represent certain distributions and so on as well. And yet I'm saying it very generic, of course, but I I don't think it's just the data. I'll give you an example. If you want to track my face, you've got to track all the head waggling I'm doing, right? Yeah, but I think that's what I'm saying, right? I mean, it's very important that this is like your specific motion is, is unique about you. And I think we have to make sure that AI leverages these features in a sense, right? It can figure it out. And we should not just make sure that it works for like a small percentage of people or like even with the majority of people, I think we need to make sure that nobody is excluded from that. And that's a discussion we need to have, right? So here's the thought. Since you bring up privacy, right? Privacy is always privacy of what? It so turns out. So there was a trend a few years ago of getting your genetic sequencing done, right? And then you could figure out your genealogy and so on. And it seems that there is, maybe I'm a little bit off on the numbers, but not on the order, like something like 60% of white Caucasian population in the US has their genome sequenced. Right, just because they were on these websites like 23andMe and me and so on. From the privacy perspective, it means that actually the non-white population has their privacy protected, right? And so when I look at it, there's this interesting situation that we run into is that if we, in a targeted way, try to collect data or tune models to certain populations, are we not flipping this? It depends a bit on the application. I mean, like, I think this is, by the way, I have no idea how big the absolute numbers they are, but I would argue that on a global scale, I'm not sure how representative these samples are yet of the population. In, in a sense, like, there's just a very small number of people doing it, actually. I don't know, actually, how big these numbers are, in fairness. 
I don't know, do you have a rough estimate how many people did sequence the genome? 60% of the American population, of the, of the white American population. Oh, wow. It was some 60, it's like 63, 66, something. It's, it's of that order. Wow, interesting. Okay. I, I thought it was like 10% or so, maybe. That's why it became enough of a problem that people were talking about it. And folks over, for instance, in the NIH are talking about, well, what is the... We want to have gene sequencing be done, but like we want to also release this data on, online for improving research, but what are the implications of that? And that's where the reason I bring that up is because it ties in with graphics. We want to have data on people to be able to model humans, to be able to generate their virtual avatars, right? A person would be left out of the workplace and the social interactions of the future if they didn't have their virtual avatar be representative of who they are. So, so if they were not represented in the cyber domain. But the flip side of it is we are going to be recording everybody at a very large scale as well. Where does that leave us? I want to get back to the point, but I think the graphics technology, in a sense, provides us a tool that we have at hand. By the way, I'm not arguing everything we're doing should be private, but I think we should have a, a way to choose what should be private. Right. And I think that the technology we're having right now with graphics and face replacement, face swapping, anonymization, and I mean, a lot of the things you're talking about, right? That is the thing we can make reality, right? We can take surveillance footage, we can anonymize faces at least to some certain degree that they're not recognizable. We can also make sure that whatever we're doing there reflects, we should do it, we're not doing it right now, but we should make sure that it reflects a reasonable diversity of the population. I think that's a huge opportunity from anything what we're doing right now where we don't care about it, basically. We're raising more awareness to it, and we're making sure we have also tools that can counteract privacy issues is definitely a step forward from where we are. I don't have a strong, well, I, I guess I'm not, not the expert on things like genetic sequences and stuff like that, but I think from a pure visual standpoint, whatever data we're capturing from ourselves, our likenesses, that is a thing we probably will have to, at some point, have some legislation, who owns that stuff, right? How do you deal with it? Who can use it and so on? And I think with the graphics tools, we have ways of selecting what can be shared and what shouldn't be shared. I'd like to, to just nicely dovetail to what we can do to mitigate the, the risk that we, we discussed. And just as an introduction in my day job, when I'm not the technical papers chair, I, I work at Adobe and Adobe and several other companies have these content authenticity initiatives which goal is to help good actors to prove what's true, to help them authenticate their, their content so it can be trusted. I think Ekta earlier today mentioned a video called Sassy Justice that's meant to educate people, to make it obvious to people like defect exists and you, you should be aware of this. I know when we prepared this nice discussion, Chris mentioned also comics that are meant to educate people on the risk of defect in the context of propaganda. And there are all these really, like, really interesting ways that people have come up to act as a counterweight there and it's both educating people, but also just favoring, and I think it has been mentioned earlier, favoring the, the good actors. There's a lot of very good use. People are mean to do well. Where do we see that coming? And you, you started the discussion on that front. So like Adobe's Content Authenticity Initiative, and there, there are several other initiatives that everybody's collaborating like TruePic, like four years ago, started already a prototype for like, okay, you take a picture, you authenticate it at capture, then you use like uh, some cryptographic ledgers to propagate where it comes from. And 
These are very interesting frameworks to sort of enhance the positive views of it. And, but also, like I, I sort of observed this, including Adobe, includes other organizations like Witness. There is no silver bullet on solving it. We sort of make all this progress, but we always have to do it in a responsible way. So I hear a lot, okay, we can build a detector that can detect fake pixels, and then we catch them all. Of course, it's only done with the probability. Of course, it's an arms race. But then the flip side where you propagate like, okay, this is authenticated content. I know the author, and then I serve it somewhere. It sounds like a silver bullet, but it's also not a silver bullet. It can also be misused. Like we talked about privacy. Privacy might be lost. There might be certain parts of the society can do this versus other parts cannot do it. And so I very much like this entire landscape of all these different approaches. We need lots of lots of different solutions because unfortunately, there's no silver bullet right now that we have invented. And I don't think we will ever invent a silver bullet for this. I'm not sure if others have like opinions about sort of the authentication and the ledgers kind of frameworks that are out there. Like it's also, it's basically, it is the future. It's sort of like a lot of things have to be thought out in a responsible way. It's not a solution for tomorrow. It's a solution maybe in a few years. And so I'm very interested in following all this. Well, it's a bit of a question of convenience, I think, right? I mean, you can go ahead and have a, a signature for every image and you can verify whoever signed it is kind of a witness for whatever happened there, right? You can verify content this way to some degree. But I think the truth is people don't care too much about it. I think even simple stuff, like nobody is using email encryption, right? I mean, there's a small percentage of people encrypting their emails, I think. Anybody can stand on behalf of somebody else. And I think a similar kind of inconvenience for images where you would have to have like a fewer that would verify where the images come from would be required. But I think people just don't care too much about it right now. And I think part of the problem is also that at least for the time being, it's not such a big issue. Talking about like Photoshop, right? Photoshop has been around for quite a while. Eventually people got more sensitive to things. Oh, this could be changed. It could be edited. So yeah, I don't know. In the end of the day, people didn't care too much about it. I think I would expect this will happen. I think there will be some some platforms for journalism, for fact checkers, maybe. For these people, I think it's more important, but that's not the broad masses, I think. I don't, I don't see it anytime soon that like social media platforms like, I don't know, like YouTube, Google, or like Facebook or, or Twitter. So these guys, they, they're not gonna necessarily go ahead and like have verified content on a camera yet. Maybe you're saying maybe it might develop, but I think at the moment there wasn't such a big need, right? And we had this discussion for quite a while and so far, well, I wouldn't say there's no harm being done, right? But I, I'm saying like, at the moment, at least for, for disinformation, fake news and stuff like this, it wasn't the major issue. So that's why this flattened out a little bit. I want to bring up a methodology that's used in the cyber com security community, which is called threat modeling. And what threat modeling says is that for any technology, we want to be able to articulate what the threat is. So what is a threat vector, right? So who is the adversary? What are the risks? What is the threat vector, which means how the adversary will act out the threat? And then appropriately design mitigations. The reason I bring this up is because I think it will serve us as a community to start thinking about our technology from that 
perspective too. So right now, when I hear everything that's being talked about, there's threats to the user. There's threats which are related to the platform that's serving this technology. And there are threats that are related to the audience. So this kind of verification, authenticity verification is related to the trust that the audience has when they are consuming the content that's being generated. But then there's also the aspect of the technology platform, right? Which could be a personal device, next generation variable perhaps, or it could be an app or a service which uses various things that are on the cloud and sends data back and forth. How much the public will trust this platform is going to depend on how this platform can safeguard their data. And that very much depends on like internal housekeeping and how data is being passed along and such. But what we haven't kind of talked about is the user themselves. What happens is that the user is being certainly educated. So all of the education that's being done is telling the user, hey, this is what deepfakes is. This is what it can do. This is why situations in which you can believe it. This is situations where you don't have to be afraid of it. But at the end of the day, as a user, there are situations where I don't have a choice, right? Either opt out of a service or technology and say, I'm just going to, it's the equivalent of living in a bunker in today's day and age. I'm going to make sure that none of my data is going to ever go out so anybody, so, so nobody can make a deep fakes of me and then I'm safe, right? Because I don't trust the platform and I, I, like, I don't know if they can do verify my data. And even if they verify my on somebody has made a porn video out of me, the damage is done, right? And so from the user's perspective, Right now, there's just a opt-in or opt-out. And so what I would like to add over here is that as technologists, what we can also do is to see if there are ways to offer users a spectrum. Just kind of like when we do location tracking on our phone, there's a, you can turn off location tracking, you can have like high fidelity location tracking, or you can have low fidelity location tracking. And so that's what I would open to the community, which is, I think Chris brought this up as like, what, what can you do with low quality manipulation, right? What, what are the harms of low quality manipulation? I would also say that there's, what are the uses of low quality virtual avatars? Maybe as a user, I don't need to give up X amount of data because a low quality virtual avatar can work just as well for this kind of application, right? And as a user, if I can navigate that spectrum, then that engenders confidence in these technologies. So that's the bit that I wanted to add in terms of how we think about it as we are developing these technologies. One last topic on our discussion. Let's discuss also the positive sides. And we mentioned them when we got started. There's a lot of good uses of deepfakes. And there's things around the entertainment. There is telepresence. Can we touch a bit on this? Where do we see all this tool being used for the greater good? Maybe I can start. So, I mean, I see deepfakes as kind of a sub-part of graphics, depending on how you define it, right? It's, it's one way to synthesize videos of humans or faces with various AI techniques. But generally speaking, the same holds for the whole of graphics, right? I mean, there's a lot of applications for computer graphics that traditionally was in, in entertainment. But of course, there's a lot of other industries like entertainment, beyond entertainment around it. And I want to actually push it a little bit further to the future, right? I mean... Like in our research, what we're trying to do in my lab is eventually we want to build like holograms, right? We want to have these 
photorealistic captures of real people that you can use them for things like remote collaborations, remote workplaces. Like how do we work in like 10, 20 years together, right? Do we have an opportunity to remotely together and have the same immersive experience as in real life? Do we have virtual avatars in the same way? We have a real assistant, right? Do we have people who who kind of take care for elderly people, virtually speaking, right? They go to them, they talk to them. There's a lot of societal questions. There's questions for translation, video synchronization. If I'm speaking, can I translate myself into 30 different languages at the same time? I'm helping to connect people together, right? And all of these kind of things where we're going more and more virtual will definitely define how society develops. So very recently, I, I was invited by our transport minister in Germany to talk with all the transport ministers of the European Union. And the question is, how does mobility in the future look like? And, and my argument is the mobility is clearly virtual, right? There was a lot of discussion about self-driving cars. But I think, what if you don't even have to go anymore from one place to another place, but still have the same experience virtually? And I think this is a big challenge that we as a community are currently trying to solve. Capture reconstruction is one part, like synthesis. But of course, there's a lot around it, right? You have to have displays, you have to have AR, VR displays, how to get the images that you capture them back to your brain. And frankly, right now, it's even frustrating a little bit when you're seeing Zoom meetings. Like we're looking at a 2D screen right now still, right? We've been looking at computer graphics for such a long time. I think it would be fantastic if we had like these like 3D avatars. I, I want to look around you, right? I want to talk to multiple people virtually at the same time without interrupting all the other conversations virtually. Right, just these very simple things we're still struggling with right now. But if we figured them out, and COVID has been an accelerator for it, right? Because we are confined in a home office situation. But I think if we figure that out, this will really transform society and will connect people at different places on earth and kind of solve mobility in one way or another, right? I mean, it's not going to come again in one step, but it will come in many, many steps. I think this is a really, really great, great area. And I should say, I think mostly the, the positive things about deep fake technology are probably the overwhelming majority right now. Like, sure, we've discussed a lot about the dangers, but I think the big question of remotely working and connecting, communicating together, revolutionizing communication, generally speaking, that's just such a, a, a huge opportunity. We should just spend more time and effort on it. Chris, you want to go next? I actually said it already at the beginning that the reason we got into this technology was to translate into lots of different languages automatically. And, and Matthias just said it again. It would be great if we can just translate cooking shows in hundreds of different languages and every movie you make can be translated. There's also intermediate steps with this new synthetic models. You can have low bandwidth communication in certain areas of the world and have high quality uh, remote presence. And then also, like when I was still in academia, we worked with uh, the medical school on reconstructive surgery. You can augment many things like you want to plan how certain things look in your face when you go through surgery. You can be anybody you want to be in games and with your virtual avatars. There are already many good uses right now that are used all over the world. And I think the future is bright. Ekta, you want to share your vision on all the positive uses that we see of deepfakes? So I'm interested in deepfakes as a tool for privacy, just similar to what Chris mentioned as a, as a tool for privacy in terms of eyewitness videos. Our lab has recently been funded to look at deepfakes as a tool for privacy in healthcare videos. There are video recordings of a variety of 
observation sessions and interviews that are done in the context of healthcare, they're not shared because your face, by definition, has your identity. And these could potentially be shared for training of healthcare workers if it wasn't for the fact that the patient identity had to be protected. So we're starting to examine the use of deepfake technology for protecting patient privacy. Well, thanks a lot to the three of you. I think that was a really exciting discussion. I think we could go on and on because it's such an interesting and deep topic. But I think it's a good time to wrap up and thank you for your time and thank our audience to stay for staying with us. Nice seeing you all. Thanks a lot for having us. I think it was great. It was also great talking to everybody. It was nice to meet everybody. What fascinating perspectives. Before we let you, our listeners, go, there's actually a part two to this discussion, and Sylvana is joined by one last guest, renowned deepfake artist Control Shift Face, otherwise known as Tom. Hi, I'm Sylvain Paris. I'm the technical papers chair for SIGGRAPH 2021, and it's my pleasure to have Tom uh, with us to discuss deepfakes and uh, his work um, there. So I think to get started, maybe a, a good way to introduce yourself to our audience, Tom, is to describe a bit who you are and how you, you got interested in deepfakes and uh, how your work got started. So I'm Tom. I run the YouTube channel Control Shift Face. And how I got into deepfakes? Well, <laughs> mainly I was just a bit bored at the time and I wanted to try something new, play with something new. and. Uh, my default job was to do photogrammetry, which is 3D scanning of people for uh, video games or movie entertainment and this sort of thing. So this kind of sounds like the same thing. I mean, making digital doubles of humans, but the process here is totally different. So I started by... Um, faking just myself into various kinds of shows and movies, mainly to entertain myself and my friends. And since, I mean, I noticed that my fakes are, I dare to say, were better than most of what was out there. And I didn't really like the ideas behind most of them, like, Everything was always about some Marvel movies and superheroes, and I'm not into that kind of stuff. So I decided to start my own channel and do something different, something new. Thanks, Tom. Uh, so some things that um, I realized is that, at least in some of your videos, the, the one with uh, Bill Adder, for instance, you show the transition from uh, Bill to another actor and back and forth several times. And it's quite unique. Usually people, when they do deep fakes, they, they always they try to make it as seamless as possible, right? Not to reveal the effect. And I would say you, you take an entirely different approach where you the effect become part of the, you know, the, the transition where the effect appear become part of the effect itself. Mm -hmm. Is there some, some thought, can you talk a bit about that? Is there or you came to that uh, way to proceed? I mean, the idea there was to 
do with his face the same thing he's doing with his voice, like transform himself. If you close your eyes, then he basically transforms himself to someone else. But if you keep your eyes open, I thought it would be funny if I paired the voice transformation to face transformation. And the actual, <coughs> actual morph is really, really basic. It's just a linear fade between the original face and the deep fade. And I just experiment with it. How does it look? And it looked, like you said, kind of seamless and spooky. And I think that's why those videos are so popular. I mean, there's the aspect of the deep fake, but also there's this strange feeling in your brain when you see something like this and you can't really process what's happening and you don't even see the transformation itself, basically. You just realize that all of a sudden he's some, someone else and the, the, the morphs are almost invisible and people got really confused by it and many of the comments those videos are getting most of the people don't even realize those are fakes which is kind of scary even if it says so right in the title in the description and there is link to the original video people basically don't read descriptions and stuff like this and they just believe whatever they see which is it's kind of scary. <laughs> well, you know, uh, thanks, Tom. That, you know, that's, uh, that I agree with you. It's kind of scary and it's strange. And with our other guests, we, we discussed uh, uh, there the, the risk of defect to, to be used for malicious purposes and how it can be used, for instance, in, politi you know, in politics uh, and or, or other contexts to re become a vector of uh, uh, lies and things like that. And I know recently you have been involved in that other very popular video like Sassy Justice. Is that something, so if, I, if I'm right, this one also has a goal to, to educate people, at least to show what, what we can do. Can, can you tell us a bit, how, you know, both how you got involved, the inception of the project, but also the goal uh, behind this project? Well, the <clears throat> the initial goal was to create a deepfake movie, first ever deepfake movie, but because of coronavirus, that had to be slashed to something more manageable, more easier to do. So they decided to do just a shorter, like a like mini movie or short film. And I mean, yeah, there is the, the phenomenon of deep fakes. That's the first aspect. And they really, I mean, the movie they did before the Team America uh, with uh, like puppets and stuff, that's basically the same thing. They created a puppet and they want to control how he acts, what he says. And now they can do exactly the same thing, but just with deep fakes. So, Sounds to me like that's something they're into. This kind to create comedy like this to uh, control some famous person like Donald Trump and make him say this, <laughs> this hilarious stuff. Yeah, uh, yes, thanks, Tom. That's uh, that's interesting. And 
I wondered since you you have done uh, you, you know your, your previous video and, and this one, all of them have been very well received and become viral. Like, do, do you see any change? Do you feel like do people start to read the description and be more aware uh, of fakes? I think you're one of the main actor in terms of educating people by just showing what can be done. Uh, in some sense, by making it obvious, as about as you say, making people say uh, things that are very unlikely they ever said, or even just showing the transition back and forth to, to the fake. Uh, uh, have you seen a change? Is how your videos are perceived? Is it harder to do defects these days, for instance, because people are more aware of them? I mean, <clears throat> people are a bit more critical when I try to do something uh, more, more complicated. That's when the result is not as perfect. Sometimes I just like the idea more than the uh, when the quality of the deepfake. And sometimes, I mean, when the data set, when you have a data set of a very famous actor who who done a ton of movies, then the deepfake will result in a higher quality. But if I try something like the uh, election deepfake, when I try to replace the entire heads and I use Trump and uh, Joe Biden, and I have most of the data, I had for those two were from YouTube, so it wasn't as high quality. I really liked the video, but I mean, the people are really critical, like, oh, it's not so good. It's not as good as your previous work. They just don't realize what 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 goes in. I mean, the fact that those deep fakes are the only ones where I replaced entire heads with hair and stuff, and that's much more difficult to do. And I mean, yeah, of course, if you use the original hair, hair is very fine and you can really deep fake hair as good as as a face. So people are more critical as times go by, for sure. But from the old ones, the Bill Hader, I mean, most of the comments there, which I assume are from the older generation, they don't realize that it's a big fake. They just think he's so good of an imperson impersonator that he just can manipulate his face. Even, I mean, to me, it was very obvious from the beginning, and I was surprised at how many people thought that it's real. I mean, to me, it's clear that it isn't because it's something supernatural, and some people believe that it's really strange. I wonder, you mentioned that people don't realize what's going into making these deep fakes. Uh, is that something you 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 could share? You know, give us a, a bit of a peek behind the curtain, how you work? Yeah. And, um... I mean, for example, uh, you need a very large data set of uh, all kinds of different expressions of the of the actor and all kinds of different lighting scenarios of the actor. And sometimes you don't have it if it's someone like Freddie Mercury, who there was a problem with the lower quality data because he was popular mainly in the 70s and 80s. And there are no, well, some concerts are in Blu-ray quality, so that was a lifesaver there. But for example, the, uh, Trump and Biden rap battle. It's also very important to have a very large data set of the 
effect I'm replacing. So if I have just a very limited data, like for that clip, the AI cannot learn as good, for example, eye movement. So sometimes you just need to realize who is the subject I replace and it's not someone super popular. It's all about the data, basically, deepfakes. Deepfakes are only as good as the data. There are like the settings to the AI models and stuff, but data is always the most important part. It's interesting. And so something that we discussed with the other guest is that one of the mitigation uh, for the risk of defect spreading and becoming uh, very common is actually how hard they are and that you, you need uh, an expert like yourself uh, to, to do this. So would you say that right now the highest quality is there's really very few people and you cannot just go uh, online and buy a defect software and tomorrow you, you start to do your own defects like it's still in the domain of very specialized experts like your, yourself. Do, do, do you agree with that? Do you see a trend where this would become like more commonplace and and uh, maybe a more widespread concern I, because I of know that? there are some applications, different applications where you can upload just one photo of yourself and kind of creates a deep fake. But as I always say, it's kind of easy to create a mediocre deep fake or lower quality one. Then it's and then it's to create some like higher quality one. And the software I'm using is basically free. It's open source. It's called Deep Face Lab. And uh, another uh, complication is like you need a very, very powerful GPU and computer overall with a lot of uh, video memory. And these kind of GPUs are super expensive. So not everyone has the access to them. But then again, the first deep fakes I did were done on very basic GPU that, I mean, the better GPU you get, the more VRM you get, the more fidelity of the deep fakes you can get, the more resolution you can get. And then you can, for example, do like a close up of a, of a face, which you can't do when you don't have enough resources and you use just small resolution for the deep fake. It always depends what you want to do. If it's just something like an interview where the face is kind of small and the head is not moving very dramatically and there is not just not some very complicated light, then you can create a very believable deep fake with a basic computer, basically. But it's, as you say, Sassy Justice is in some sense already a short movie. You, you see more, we, we discussed, for instance, that maybe we can get, you can pick and choose your actors and whether they're available or not doesn't matter that much because you could deepfake them in the movie even they're not really here. So how, how, how do you look at this, all this domain of opportunity around entertainment, movie making and related applications? Yes, something like de-aging is an excellent use of deepfakes. And for the Irishman, there is actually a deepfake made by a fellow deepfaker. His name is Shamuk, and he created his own version of the Irishman with deepfakes. And it really looks much better and much more like a younger Robert De Niro than the what they use in a movie. But, I mean, the movie was produced, I think, 
2018 and or 19 so the technology wasn't there at that time i think but now i think more and more movie studios will look at deepfakes for stuff like this or for example if you want to replace a stunt double with your actor that's another perfect use of deepfakes but to do an entire movie uh, i mean there the complicated part is because deepfakes have some limitations like very tight angles are difficult to do or if there are some face obstructions and stuff like this so you need to create the script with deep fakes in mind because for the movie to work every single shot needs to be perfect basically and at this time i think it's on the edge of being ready for something like a full full-length movie with lead deepfake actor. That, that's, yeah, that's interesting because I, I know like it was a big tour de force to get the Irishman and you say that now we can, one person can start to redo entire scenes by, on their own. It's quite a change of scale. Like, I don't think people would have imagined that not so long ago. I wonder if there's anything uh, you can share about current project or like your future project of yours so where would you really like to see this field going in the near and more distant future i mean right now i'm still working for the south park studios because the sassy justice will eventually be a tv series that's the plan anyway right now and for my personal project right now i'm experimenting with some different model settings and some different resolutions and running in on different operating systems and see if I can achieve higher quality or more, more consistent results. So that's what I'm doing right now. Yes, thanks, Tom. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? Any any topic you, you feel is important to, to discuss related to deepfakes? Those deepfakes that work just with one photo, for example, there are neural nets that can... Uh, basically take one photo and create different angles of that face just from the one photo. So this is, for example, an aspect that will definitely improve the quality of the deepfake and make the data set larger and more diverse if it can create like more angles of the face. Because like I said, the data set is the more important part. So there is definitely a a lot of room for improvement that deepfakes can get a lot better in the future. And I think that in a few years, deepfakes can be so good that we will need an, another type of AI to detect these deepfakes. And I saw some uh, experiments that there are these kind of softwares that can detect deepfakes, but the problem is when you use a lower quality video with a lot of compressions or a lot of compression, then the software could struggle. So, I mean, the news like to uh, always paint the worst possible picture about deepfakes and what chaos they can cause. But I mean, it's 2020, the year of chaos, and there wasn't any misuse of deepfakes that I'm aware of. So. I'm really curious what what will happen in the future. Yes, thanks, Tom. 
And also one thing I would like to add is uh, in terms of the YouTube channel, uh, there, there is also the aspect of the YouTube itself and its strange policies about the uh, copyrights. So sometimes even if I have a great idea, I cannot make the video because of the video gets striped because of a copyright. I recently got, uh, got a, a copyright claim for a nine seconds of music in a eight minute long video. So that can be quite annoying. But on the other hand, sometimes I need to like think more creatively and change the edit and the narrative of the video. And sometimes that's when the magic happens. Like that, that's what happened with the Holmes Stallone video. I mean, originally it was supposed to be like um, uh, Rambo will like destroy the burglars. But then I found out someone already did something like that. So I had to change it. Then I had problems with copyright, so I had to add the plane crash and totally re-edit re the video. And I think that's the favorite one I, I did, and it's because of the copyrights on YouTube. So yeah, it's two sides of a coin, I guess. Uh, yeah, thanks, Tom. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's quite interesting to see how the creative process can sometimes benefit from some like limitation and roadblocks to, to bring you somewhere uh, unexpected. And I also want to thank you for all the, for sharing your thought and give us a, a bit of a peek of behind the scene, how you work. Uh, I was, I, I knew your work before we organized this discussion and I really like it. I, I would say now I like it even better than I know how hard it is and all the, the thought you put in there. It was really great to have you with us. And you know, as you want, you uh, want to see more technology, we have more at SIGGRAPH, like for sure. Like every year, there's more and more technology coming out in this domain. So I'm sure we'd make your life easier. Yeah, I always watch SIGGRAPH trailers. It's been fascinating to me. And that's basically how I got into the AI. Did I watch the SIGGRAPH uh, previews and little papers and all these kind of strange papers like someone things of, okay, let's create an algorithm for bread. <laughs> let's just tear the bread apart to look it as realistic as it can be. I mean, it's such a simple uh, idea and such a weird idea. And I love papers like this and I really enjoy watching these Seagraph videos and it's a pleasure to be a little part of it. Uh, you know, thanks, Sam. It's a pleasure to have you, you know, uh, part of, of our community as well. And you know, I'll make sure I send you our, our trailer video personally this year. Thank you very much. Oh boy, technology really is incredible and intimidating. Am I right? For more information on deepfakes and the people or projects shared today, check out the links in our show notes. Don't forget to press subscribe on this podcast so you can. Follow our journey through incredible technology, art, and more. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to help others find us. The SIGGRAPH 2021 conference is currently accepting submissions for next summer, including new research via the Technical Papers Program. Visit s2021.siggraph.org for more information on submitting.